0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with HG Tudor about the three schools of narcissists, control tactics, perspectives, and why gray rock doesn't work. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. Today, my guest will be HG Tudor. And before we get to our show, and it's a great show, everyone, you will learn a lot. If you want to be part of our show, not this show, but our Survivor Stories show, which airs on Mondays, Please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Guest Form. Click that button, and away we will go from there. And to also be on that show, we have our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. And to be on that, you also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Side of the page, there's a floating button that says Send Voicemail. Click on that button. It records up to five minutes, twice records up to ten, and so on and so on. We are accumulating these letters for a volume six of that episode and if you do not want to read the letter yourself and you want me or my old pal melissa to read the letter for you please send us an email at narcissist at gmail.com and i just want to say you know big thank you to hg tutor for being part of this show I truly believe that understanding the the mind of who you're dealing with uh, helps a lot. So, you know, today we'll be talking to HG Tudor. He is a psychopathic uh, narcissist, and he created this whole entire school cadres etc, uh, etc. Et so many things to learn from. So I will leave all of the information in the show notes after the show. So don't worry about that. And you know, without further ado, here is my episode with HG Tutor. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. With me today, I have HG Tutor. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Brandon. Thank you for asking me along, and how are you today?
0: I am doing well, and for those of you who do not know H.G. Tudor, he's a world-renowned authority on narcissism, and the prolific author of more than 40 books and programs... Mr. Tudor writes from his own perspective as a narcissist psychopath and provides extensive insights on every aspect of dealing with a narcissist. Through his insightful lens, you will learn the true mindset, behaviors, and aims of the narcissist. myths and false hopes will be extinguished and replaced with pure logic defenses. You will learn your role in each type of relationship with a narcissist and find detailed information on how you can best prepare to deal with and escape from narcissistic abuse. You can find his offerings at narcsite.com, which is N-A-R-C-S-I-T-E.com. That will be in the show notes. And he has a treasure chest of YouTube videos, and you can find that at Knowing the Narcissist on YouTube. And he also has a podcast of the same name. And I discovered you through, I guess, my initial, uh, you know, time I was looking around on the internet and Mm -hmm. I found everything that you had there quite useful. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, coaching clients of my own and uh, people in the support group, everyone uh, finds you know, getting into the mindset of who they're dealing with very useful, and I think it's extremely valuable. And there's a lot of people okay. that listen to the show that have not been exposed to you, and, and might actually be scared of, of of being introduced to you. And okay. you know, it, you know, I just wanted to point out to everyone today, like you are very useful, and everything that you have is uh, amazing when you when you're trying to heal and trying to understand actually what happened. And today we're going to discuss. You know, pretty much the basics, which are the the, the four cadres which you have um, determined yourself, um, you created, as well as the three types. And, And, you know, and I guess just before we get into that, you know, when I look at this kind of stuff, I'm an, do you know what the Enneagram personality test is?
1: I've heard of it.
0: Yes. So to me, yours is like, this is like the Enneagram for a uh, narcissist. And, you know, you're trying to peg which one you've, you, you're dealing with. And, you know, for people who are listening uh, to this, you know, you also, one of the offerings on your site is the detector, the narc detector, where you, you write into you, uh, I think it's like 1200 words. In uh, a story, and you get back to everyone uh, with like your determination of what t- uh, type they are, what cadre they are. So, I mean, everything you have is, is fantastic. So, let's just uh, go into, I guess you know, the four cadres and, and three schools, and then we'll go to uh, audience questions after. So, you have, I guess, the schools are you know lesser, mid range, greater, and also you consider one to be ultra. But we'll discuss the three.
1: Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so we have lesser, mid-range, and greater. And there are sub-schools within each of those three main schools. Those three schools have certain things in common. For example, all of them have no emotional empathy whatsoever. All of them manipulate. All of them need to pursue the prime aims. prime aims are control, fuel... Some people use that awful phrase narcissistic supply fuels much more apt and it's far quicker to type and character traits (laughs) and residual benefits. So every single narcissist is geared to search out those four prime aims in the appliances that we interact with. The appliances are of course people, but I call them appliances because that's how we actually see you. Now, There are numerous differences between the schools and one could talk for a very long time about all the ins and outs of them, but I'll give a broad brush approach. Lesser narcissists have no emotional empathy and no cognitive empathy. They have no awareness. They don't know what they are. And like every other narcissist, they'll never change. They tend to be a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut approach. A wrecking ball that goes through life and they adopt this uh, methodology of it's my way or the highway. What are you crying for? Why are you upset? What are you talking about? They invariably don't see what their behavior, how their behaviour is problematic. If it's pointed out to them, you do well to be met with something like a shrug or deal with it or so what or F you, I'm leaving. And so within the lesser, you have lower lesser, which is basically... An individual's not very clever, your archetypal, wife-beating, moonshine-swigging, trailer-trash-park individual probably doesn't work, and the lowest of the low. Middle-lesser, similar to the first one, generally down at heel, not particularly bright, low on charm, have very rudimentary manipulations, for instance, physical violence, the application of heated fury through shouting, argumentativeness, um, insult, sexual violence, doesn't operate with a facade, has some mid-range behaviours within it, so sulking, silent treatments. Then we get to the upper lessers. There are two. Upper lesser A, the affable arsehole. Upper lesser B, the bullying, brash boasting bastard. So A is the kind that they they can often be quite charismatic. They may be intelligent. And they don't operate with a facade, and what you see is what you get. But they tend to be quite likable. So an example of an Appalachia of Taipei would be somebody who'd turn up at your party and go, "Woohoo! beer, gear, chicks, let's do this. And it's like a whirlwind. Charges around everybody, uh, gets caught in the bedroom with somebody, then with somebody else. And two hours later, it's gone, somebody goes, who the hell was that? No, I did. Did you invite him? No, I didn't. But people kind of like these individuals. You can't rely on them. To any extent, they're utterly superficial. And if you were to go to an upper lesser type A boohooing about the fact that your wife has left you, he'd go, fantastic, great, we can get down the strippers now, can't we? He really doesn't care about your personal woes. The upper lesser type B is brash, boasting, uh, and is a bully. It's my way or the highway. Don't like it? You're fired. Get out of here. Fake news. You don't understand. You're a disgrace. Again, can be intelligent, but not necessarily so. Often fairly successful, mainly at a local level, but sometimes beyond that. So those are that's roughly a sketch of the lessons. Mid-range, often the hardest ones to spot. Mid-rangers tend to be passive aggressive. They have a wider manipulative palette, wider range of manipulations, and they operate with facades. Mid-range narcissists have cognitive empathy, fake empathy. They have learned how to fit into a degree. But that facade is not always as effective as it might be. Lower mid-range, they are an amalgam of lesser and mid-range. Can be aggressive, can be physically violent also. And they have an intermittent facade, meaning some people will say, yeah, he's a decent chap, but there are holes in that facade, like a strip light that flickers on and off. So family, friends, colleagues will have seen the dark side manifest. They're not all sweetness and light the whole time. With cognitive function, tends to be low. Sometimes there are exceptions. Middle, mid-range, there's A and B. A is your overwhelming angel. These are the helicoptering parents, the neighbor who's always dropping in to say, hello, do you need anything, but doesn't recognize any boundaries. These people think, they often think that they're empaths and they're not. They think that they're kind and they're helpful and they don't see that their behaviors are passive-aggressive interfering, they operate with a facade of helpfulness. But I I was only trying to help. I don't understand what the problem was. Why did everybody get so shirty? They stick their nose where it's not wanted. They interfere, but under the auspices of thinking they're actually helping. Middle, middle range type B is your crybaby. Pity plays, the world is against me and the universe has cursed me. It's, It's not my fault, but why does everybody pick on me? I was only trying to do the right thing and she left me. I don't understand what it is. How could you do this to me after everything that I've done? Again, both operate a facade, both are particularly passive-aggressive. Upper mid-range, arrogant, haughty, but polished, charismatic. Operates a facade of superiority. So, for instance, think of a surgeon, and everybody thinks he's a bit of a cocky bastard, but he is very good at his job, so people let it slide. Dismissive, but they draw people to them very easily. And... All within that group operate with cognitive function, have a wider range of manipulative behaviours, such as silent treatments, pity plays. They tend to operate more with cold fury, which means the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, ignoring people. But there may be some heated fury with lower mid-range and uh, upper mid-range as well. Then we move on to the greaters. Here's the biggest distinction is that the greaters are aware. They know what they're doing and they know precisely why they operate as the way that they do. But they don't go around telling people that because that would be moronic, because that would be a transference of power. I can tell you all about my awareness because none of you know who I am, but nobody in my private life would be told that, uh, the way that I operate and function because I would be giving them power in doing so, and that would threaten my control. So one would not do that. The greater, lower greater, middle greater, upper greater. Lower greater tend to be the more brutish type. Uh, have huge fuel matrices, often successful in business, uh, prominent in the military and politics. They can often be seen as the iron fist in the velvet glove, charismatic, but harsh, and caring. but they get away with it because they've got their hands on power. Middle greater tend to be drawn from the ranks of the entertainers, film stars, pop stars, tech entrepreneurs, those type of individuals. Massively charismatic, often all about doing the right thing often involved in humanitarian activities, again, a facade of being helpful and kind, but on a huge international scale, either national or international. Upper greater, these are particularly Machiavellian characters, uh, the Eminence Greases at times. They don't particularly seek fame for fame's sake. They'll have extensive fuel matrices, but they operate in between the lines moving in the corridors, pulling the strings. You often may not know of any of these individuals even hear about because they don't tend to be famous on a global scale. But within certain uh, cabals, they're well-known. Uh, think banking, think politics, uh, think uh, economically, scientific communities, and such like. So the greaters know what they are. They have a wider manipulative palette than everybody else. They're invariably charming they fit in very easily, and they operate through calculation. Lester, mid-range, operate instinctively. As it's, I say, there's a heck of a lot of detail that can be provided about all of those three schools, and that's a little run-through there for it, you.
0: And is it fair to say, you know, lesser is just, is they are reactive to everything? Uh, a, a, mid, yes. a mid-range is reactive, but at the same time... You know, wherever their stunted growth or their childlike behavior comes from, they know that certain, you know, crying gets me this, this gets me this. You know, they have that ability to know that those kind of things get them those things, except they still don't know what they are. They just have little tricks. Is that fair to say?
1: They, with mid-range, they will recognize that their behaviors will be viewed as unpleasant or wrong or immoral, but it's always justified. So I'm not talking to you. So they know that they're giving you a silent treatment. So they know that. They don't know the real reason that they're doing it, for control and fuel and character traits and residual benefits and mm-hmm. prime aims. Their narcissism convinces them, through the narcissistic perspective, that the reason that they're not talking to you is because you've been nagging them all week. So in their mind, it's justified. They recognise that by not talking to you, that will keep shut you up, perhaps, or cause you to keep asking, what's the matter? What's wrong? So it gains attention. But they don't realise that that's fuel that they're seeking. They just see it as it's appropriate that you keep asking after them because you're in the wrong and you now need to make good. You need to make the situation better for the narcissist because of the behaviour that you have engaged in. So... With the lesser narcissist, they invariably don't see what they've done. And when it's pointed out to them, they're just met with a shrug of, well, you're an arsehole, so you deserved it. The mid ranger will always have an explanation, an excuse, and a reason. So why aren't you talking to me? You weren't talking to me first. And what is important for listeners to understand is that we operate through the majority truth, the half-truth, and nowhere near the truth. And I have a video of that title, which people will find very helpful to listen to. But simply this. This goes to the point of understanding the way that we see the world. And many, many people struggle with this, not because they're stupid, but because it's an alien concept to them. Many individuals who are victims of narcissists think that they are in the right. and We are in the wrong. We are you are only in the right from your perspective. We are only in the wrong from your perspective. And your perspective is not the be-all and end-all of perspectives. It's your perspective. Now, Often people will say, well, HG, you know there's right and wrong and good and evil. No, those are perspectives. What I do is right for me. I, I know that you think it's wrong, but it's right for me from my perspective. So take, for example... You and I, Brandon, we've gone to visit a castle. And we've gone inside Glam's, the castle in Scotland, reputedly haunted by many things, and a screaming monster uh, that's bricked up behind a brick wall. And we have equipment attached to us that's measuring our brain activity in terms of what we're seeing. And you suddenly say, hey, HG, look in the corner there. There's a little old lady in a grey shawl and her head under her arm. It's a ghost. I go, I can't see anything. The computer that you're wired up to, Brandon, registers that you're seeing something. So you're not telling a lie. My computer registers nothing. I'm not lying either. Who's right? We both are. In your perspective, you see the ghost. In mine, I don't. And so with that point made, it's important that people understand that the way that you see the world is different from the way that we see the world. And what complicates it is that you might point out that grey-brown thing over there with green leaves on it and call it a tree, And we call it a tree as well. But when it comes to behaviour, you look at the world through a lens of emotional empathy. We look at the lens through control. And it's a very simple lens. You're either threatening our control or you're giving us the control. If somebody buys me a bouquet of flowers, they're giving me control. If they say, HG, where have you been? They're threatening my control. Every single interaction or prospective interaction that takes place between a narcissist and somebody else goes through that filter. And the outcome is one of two things. You're either giving us control. So therefore we have to keep that or you're threatening our control and we therefore have to do something. Now where you're dealing with a lesser or mid range narcissist, they are unaware. So their narcissism as a self-defense mechanism prompts them to act in an instinctive way. And it gives them a reason and a feeling, but it isn't the actual reason why they're doing it. So, for instance, your throat gets dry Brandon. and you might feel a little bit lightheaded because you're thirsty. Your body is telling you you're dehydrated. Seek hydration. So you go and get a drink. If it didn't warn you and you weren't organized or disciplined enough to drink some water on the hour every hour, you would risk dehydration and possible serious injury and death. So your body has a self-defense mechanism called thirst, and like hunger and pain, to cause you to act in a particular way. We have a similar self-defense mechanism, and for an aware narcissist, I know that that person is threatening my control, and therefore I know that I have to do something to get them back under control. But most narcissists are unaware, and what the narcissism does is that the narcissism suggests to the narcissist a particular state of affairs and associates a feeling with it so that the narcissist acts on it. So the mid-range narcissist does not do this. This person is asking me questions about where I've been. They are threatening my control. Therefore, I now need to do something to assert control over them. What shall I do? I know I'll deny th- th- what they're talking I'll deny their accusations and say they've, they've got the time wrong. Yes, that's what I'll do. They don't think like that. Why? It's too slow. Instead, the narcissism does this. Who does that person think they are questioning me? They were late themselves. And the narcissism, through that alternate perspective, rewrites history so that the narcissist in that moment honestly believes that that person has turned up late previously. Now, in some instances, they have. So the narcissist uses something that you understand as your truth against you, the majority perspective truth. Sometimes the narcissist will use something that you know has happened, but there are greater circumstances around it. So there's a half-truth. So for instance, I'm not talking to you because you've been nagging me. The narcissist edits the film because the reason you weren't the reason you were nagging the narcissist was because he'd failed to take the rubbish out for four days running. But the narcissist's narcissism admits that because that would suggest culpability and uses a half-truth, namely I'm not talking to you because you're nagging, and then stops. It doesn't add in, well, the reason that you're nagging is because I failed to take out rubbish. Or you've not nagged the narcissist at all. And the narcissism just creates, by the revision of history, that you were nagging. And in that moment, that particular moment, because we operate in the moment, the narcissist truly believes it. Now, I know some people listening who think, surely they must know. Surely they must realize, no, because the way that their narcissism works, the unaware narcissist is, that they are blinded. It is like a selective amnesia. They don't choose to remember the narcissism does it for them because it has to be fast. As you're listening to me now, if you heard a loud bang, you would not do this. Oh, that's a loud bang. Could it be that a bomb has gone off? If it has... That might mean shrapnel flying through the air. I'd better make myself small. Or what's that crack, crack, crack sound? Oh, that sounds like gunfire. I'd better hit the deck, otherwise I'll get hurt. As soon as you hear it, you drop to the floor. Why? It's your startle reflex. It has to be instinctive because it has to be fast to protect you. And it's the same with the lesser and the mid-range narcissist. Their narcissism has not evolved sufficiently to enable them to apply a decided-upon action Calculated action straight away, so the narcissism does it for them like an autopilot. And the way that it does it, it convinces the narcissist that 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 person has behaved in a particular way by the revision of history in some shape or form, the editing of the film, and it will ignite the narcissist's fury. And it might do that to make the narcissist furious, or envious, or jealous, or contemptuous, or utilising antipathy or hatred to drive the narcissist to respond. Because if it didn't, the narcissist if the narcissist control is being threatened and he went, meh, nah, about doing something, the narcissism isn't working. The narcissist has to be galvanized into action immediately. So our fury ignites. The narcissism creates a feeling, and they're usually negative ones, but there are a small number of positive ones as well. And, for instance, with the concept of love. We have no emotional empathy. We're incapable of love. But what we have is infatuation. And the narcissism creates infatuation. Causes us to think that you're amazing and wonderful and that you've been sent from heaven and you're our soulmates and it's always meant to be and all of that, like that nonsense that they're spouted. Because mm. the narcissist to truly believe that they care and love and want to be with you. But it's fake. Because the narcissism has to create it as an artifice to make the narcissist behave in a particular way, to assert that control, to draw the fuel, etc.
0: So once people figure out what type of narcissist they are dealing with from the schools, can you please now kind of go into what the cadres are and uh, what the uh, classes are for everyone uh, to understand kind of like once you kind of figure these things out, how do you then kind of divvy them up kind of downward, if that makes sense?
1: Okay. Schools governs behaviors, cadres, governs preference. So somatic narcissist has a preference uh, for certain things. Not all, all of these things might not necessarily be present. Because, think of it as there might be 50 things that a somatic narcissist might have. Some somatics will have all 50. Some will have 35. Some will have 25. Some will have 40. So things like they want to be around the beautiful people. They're hypersexualized. They have a preoccupation with money either being tight with it or being flamboyant with it, or possibly both, dependent on circumstances. Tend to be interested in physical sports, running, football, shooting. They'll be interested in having plastic surgery, wearing the latest clothes, being seen in the best places to be seen, traveling, going on holiday. It's about the appearance. Now, some somatic narcissists are particularly deluded. So let's take a mid lesser somatic narcissist. He thinks he's Mr. Lover a lover man, but he's there with a beer belly and their balding pate and two teeth missing, but he still thinks he's God's gift to women. And so he sidles up to them in bars, deluded by his narcissism that he's attractive. But you could also have a different middle lesser somatic who is good looking. So the, 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 there are somatics which will be deluded and that there'll be a somatic who's good looking, but thinks he's really good looking. Um, uh, it will manifest in different ways, but the somatic is about the appearance and about material goods and essence. Then you have cerebral, which is all about naturally the mind. The arts, literature, film, often found in academia, will engage in sex, but prefers not to. It's more likely to engage in sexting and dirty telephone calls, and mutual masturbation on Skype, that kind of thing, because then there's no touching and exchange of bodily fluids. The cerebral likes to keep a distance in that respect. The cerebral is about showing how magnificent their mind is, excellent wordsmiths. Now, of course, you might get an upper, lesser type A cerebral who thinks he's far cleverer than he is. What he does through character trait acquisition is he reads a little bit of a novel, he doesn't really understand it, and he quotes it out of context. But his deluded nature causes him not to see that he gets it wrong. He, in his world, believes that he is... uh, quoting it in a way that a professor of English literature at Oxford University would be proud of. So the cerebral is about uh, art, film, literature, music, photography, gardening, the skills of the mind being applied in particular ways. The elite is an amalgam of somatic and cerebral, and they don't tend to be full on in either category, but more moderate with both. So a somatic might be ripped and buff and he's on the roids, he's down the gym and he's there with his particularly uh, finickety diet. An elite, he'll be in good shape. He'll be more athletic than absolutely looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. And he likes the finer things in life, but might maybe less crass about the demonstration of wealth. And he has an interest in the arts and literature, but he might not be the complete boffin that the cerebral would be. Then you have the victim cadre, incompetent at sex, often impotent. They want to be mothered and guided. They are freeloaders invariably often complaining about their bad backs and their gout and their dodgy knees so that people run around and do things for them, often complaining about anxiety and insomnia. Uh, there are serial whiners and complainants and they expect people to be doing everything for them they want in effect someone to mother them to iron their underpants and make them their breakfast and give them their medication and so forth and so that's the preference that they have for that type of person and the somatic has a preference for the material and the easy on the eye and the cerebral has a preference For the high-minded, and the elite has something of the somatic and something of the cerebral. So their preferences and the schools are more about the behaviours. So just to be clear, schools, lesser mid-range, greater, ultra, sub-schools within lesser, mid-range, and greater, which governs behaviours generally. Cadre, victim, somatic, cerebral, elite, which governs preferences. And then we have the four classes, which is the dynamic that occurs between the interaction between us and the relevant appliances. And invariably, this is more pertinent towards the intimate partner primary source. I classify appliances into tertiary, secondary, and primary. This is set out in my book, Fuel, but briefly. Tertiary sources are strangers and acquaintances. So the man that sells you a newspaper from the kiosk in the morning, that person that you see down the street that waves at you, but you don't know his name. Secondary sources, family, friends, colleagues, the mistress, the booty call, the side piece. They could be non-intimate, friends, family, colleagues, intimate, booty call, mistress, etc. And then the top of the tree, intimate partner, primary source, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, cohab, partner. You can have a non-intimate partner, primary source, family member, usually friend, but it's more common for there to be an intimate partner primary source. The four classes are the interaction. So you have the nomad, which is what I am. So I seduce somebody, they become my girlfriend, I then devalue them. And then if there's a disengagement trigger, I get rid of them. And then I move on to somebody new. I will hoover the former intimate partner primary source, should the conditions dictate that's appropriate. And I'll hoover her to assert control over her and draw fuel from her. But what I won't do is hoover her back into a relationship with me. So she won't be my girlfriend again because I'm the nomad. Take one, suck them dry, kick to the curb, onto the next one. And so that's the nomad word. Ping pong is basically somebody who has a, a former intimate partner, primary source, and then has the new one. And then when the new one enters devaluation, former one shifts from black to white. And therefore, the narcissist hoovers the former intimate partner primary source and then goes back to them and leaves the current one. So the former then becomes current, current becomes former. And then, having turned to the former one and made her current, she will, of course, be devalued. And then when she's devalued, The one he left goes from black to white and he hoovers her and then he may well go back to her. And he shuttles back and forth between the two. Third class is the anchor. This is a long-suffering individual. And they're invariably long-standing. Often there can be children involved. What happens is the narcissist, when she's in devaluation, the narcissist strikes out seeking a potential replacement. And then maybe has an affair leaves but then comes back citing missing the children or saying well he suddenly realises just how much his spouse loves him so he dumps the new person and goes back but then she's devalued and then there's a disengagement again and he leaves her and he goes off with somebody else but then returns to her whereas the ping pong goes between A and B and A and B and A and B the anchor goes from A to B back to A, A to C back to A, A to D back to A. And the hybrid is where the three classes that I've just mentioned get shuffled together. So it might be that the narcissist starts off with the anchor. So A to B, back to A. Then A to C, back to A. And then suddenly ditches A and moves on to D. And then ditches D and moves on to E. And ditches E and moves on to F. And suddenly morphs into becoming the nomad. And then might go on to F. And ditches her and goes to G and then goes back to F and then goes back to G and then back to F and, and ping pongs. And those are the four classes.
0: So, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, I guess manipulation tactics, and, mm. you know, I like to sometimes say, you know, the person you're dealing with had, had one kind of tactic that they all, always went to. And once, mm. and, and once. You know, the person kind of puts up enough of a stink about something, the person, uh, the narcissist is is gone. However, in some situations, a narcissist can, uh, I guess, change their tactics over time. So the the, the first tactic stops working. You know, the person's putting mm-hmm. up a lot. They change the tactic and they're very good. It's like they have, you know, a full deck of cards. Is that the difference mm-hmm. between, you know, a lesser and, and, a, and a greater? Uh, how many hands uh, or how many different kind of aces they have up their sleeve as far as changing tactics?
1: Essentially, yes. There are many, many different types of manipulation. So some are benign and some are malign. So flattery, bribery, buying you gifts. The telling of lies, future faking, triangulating you with an object, triangulating you with a person, triangulating you with an event, present silent treatments, absent silent treatments, backhanded compliments, physical violence, sexual violence, pity plays, smearing, promise gain, false compassion, false contrition, invalidation, belittlement. Those are just a handful that I've mentioned there, probably about a dozen off the top of my head. Now, there's many, many more. Some narcissists, so lessers tend to operate with heated fury which means you're more likely to be met with shouting and bullying and intimidation and threat and physical violence. You might get a silent treatment. You might get a pity play, but that's less likely. They're not going to lay on the charm because they don't really have any. You're not going to be met with oodles of flattery because they don't have it about them to behave that way. And so they have a... a, If you imagine a keyboard, this is a control panel they will only have a handful of buttons on that control panel that their narcissism can select on their behalf. Their go-to will often be physical violence or shouting or destroying property, for example. And, of course, if those things don't work, then the narcissism, th- those are a direct assertion of control. When the narcissist punches you in the face, that's a direct manipulation. It's not a particularly sophisticated one. It's hugely rudimentary. But that's directly asserting control over you. So if the narcissist knocks you on your backside and you stop moaning, the narcissist now asserted control over you in that moment. And it's control in that moment which matters. If the narcissist knocks you onto your backside and you keep going, saying I hate you, you're a cheat, and you're a, you're a no-good scumbag, you're challenging the narcissist's sense of control still. So the narcissist might go at you again with physical violence. Remember, the narcissist doesn't think right, well, I've punched him and he's still talking, so I'll punch him again. He just acts, guided by the narcissism. But the narcissism might decide, smash something up instead or threaten to smash his car up, see if that makes him stop. And so the narcissist immediately moves to that different type of manipulation. Now, if the direct assertion of control isn't working or can't be done, the narcissism shifts the narcissist to the second assertion of control, which is indirect, So that's smearing or triangulation. If that can't be done or isn't working, then the narcissism shifts the narcissist to the third assertion of control, which is withdrawal. There's active withdrawal where we put the phone down on you or walk away from you. And there's passive withdrawal where we're not interacting with you and we stay in that position of not interacting with you. So you send a text and we ignore it. We stay in a position of withdrawal. Are we actually controlling you? No, but that doesn't matter because the first assertion of control is about an obvious control. So using a crude example, a narcissist might say, go and get me some beers or I'll kick your face in. So you go and get some beers for the narcissist. The narcissist has just controlled you. It worked. Or shut your mouth, woman. Otherwise... I'm going to throw your cat out of the window. Again, a rudimentary threat. So she stops nagging or berating the narcissist. He's directly controlled her. Within direct control and with withdrawal, we don't actually control you in the sense that you'd understand. And it accords with the principle of collectes and aquaeos, which roughly translated means, if I cannot move heaven, I will raise hell. And in the world of the narcissist, we can't control you in your world, i.e. directly. We will just create another world where our narcissism gives us the sense of control. So we always gain control in some way, directly, indirectly or through withdrawal. Now, you may think, well, if the narcissist walks away, how is he in control? From your perspective, remember, going back to perspectives, it isn't. But in, the, but in the unconscious mind of that unaware narcissist, that asserts control because it's removed him from the threat that you posed. If you're calling him names and he walks away so you can't hear, your threat's been nullified. Remember, we must assert control over you, keep that control, or nullify any threat to our control. So sometimes we do it directly. Sometimes we do it indirectly by smearing you. Sometimes we do it as a consequence of withdrawal. And we always get that control one way or the other.
0: So are you ready to do some audience questions? We're not going to go through all of the questions. We have because there are so many. Um so do you uh do you wanna select fire away. okay I'll fire away. All right. Um how do you distinguish between psychopaths and narcissists?
1: Okay. Narcissists need fuel. Psychopaths don't. Narcissists experience fear. Psychopaths don't. Psychopaths can be more reckless than a narcissist. Psychopaths get bored far more quickly than narcissists do. Those are some of the, the, the base distinctions between the two.
0: And now I'm going to read this question as if in the voice of probably how the person would probably be saying it. Uh, Here we go. How can narcissists not know they're lying? Like it's an obvious lie. I didn't just sleep with my mistress when I did it, when he did it 15 minutes ago.
1: Okay. Common question and and, uh, an understandable one. If you believe that's the truth in that moment, it's not a lie. Okay. So
0: that's very George Costanza. It
1: it is again about the perspective. Yeah. So in that moment, the narcissism has has rewritten history. So tells the narcissist he's not lying. And the example he slept with his mistress 15 minutes ago, that's the past. It's gone. It's irrelevant. The past is only relevant if we need to bring it up to control the now. So think of it as a conveyor belt. And as soon as something has happened, it's gone over the edge and it's vanished. So here is the moment moving along the conveyor belt. The narcissist has to assert control in that moment. So in that moment, he's having sex with his mistress in order to control her. Because sex is one of the most effective weapons of controlling people and drawing fuel. So he's having sex with her. Time passes. The conveyor belt goes along. She drops off the conveyor belt. She doesn't exist. That event is gone. And the narcissist doesn't sit around going,
0: hmm,
1: the sex with her was really good. That doesn't serve him any purpose. He's onto the next thing they have to deal with. And so he then returns home and he's confronted by his wife, who then says to him, you've been out slipping a crippler to your mistress. In that instant, she's threatening his control. The narcissism presses the pause button. And if there was a gang of minions that all operated in, in, within the narcissism, it would do this. The intimate partner primary source is threatening control of the narcissist. OK, what she's saying is correct. Our narcissist was. Knocking the hip out of his mistress 15 minutes earlier. However, if he knows this and admits this, he doesn't have control over her. Therefore, we must now, in 1984 style, rewrite history and tell him he hasn't done anything wrong. So they rewrite the history, and he goes, first line of the twin lines, narcissistic defense, what are you talking about? I haven't been with anybody. And when he says it, he believes it, because in his mind, the narcissism has selectively adjusted the way that he sees the world. He does not stand there saying, I know I was banging her 15 minutes ago, and I'm telling a bare lie. No, because his perspective has been altered by His narcissism. He truly believes it. Take, for instance, Brandon, you take a bump on the head. And from now, the color yellow is green to you. And you've never known what the color yellow is. Why? Because your brain has been changed by that bump on the head. And so somebody comes up to you and they're wearing a yellow dress. And you say, that's a really pretty yellow dress that you've got on there, Rebecca. And she goes... Sorry, rather, you say that it's a pretty green dress. And so she goes, well, that's very kind of you, Brandon, but uh, my dress is yellow. And you go, no, it's not. It's green. Because the bump on your head has made you seem yellow as green. You're not lying. Your perspective has been altered. It's green in your world. In the same way, in that narcissist world, he wasn't with his mistress. Because his narcissism, like a bump on the head, if we view it that way, has changed his perception so he doesn't know that that was what was happening and it gets more perverse of course because the narcissism can reinstate the memory if it serves the purpose so he could then go to the bar and start bragging to his friends to assert control over his friends that he was spent the afternoon swinging from the chandeliers with his mistress because the narcissism will shape-shift all of those things to the in a manner that best suits the narcissist's purposes and so when you keep, you're convinced that that's green, but she sees it as yellow and she calls a friend over and goes, what color's my dress? And the friend goes yellow. And you're going, what are you talking about? It's green. Anybody can see that it's green because in your world, it is your vision. Your brain interprets that color as green because everything is a matter of interpretation of your brain. Somebody that suffers from chromesthesia sees sound as color. Now, I suspect you don't. I don't. But they do. That's their world. They're not making it up. In their world, they see sound as colour. And it's just viewed as disordered or abnormal because they're in the minority. But in the same way, the narcissist mind works so that when there is a threat to control, the narcissism, as a self-defence mechanism, selects the appropriate mindset, if you will, for the narcissist in that moment. And the primary defence is denial. And in order to deny it effectively, the narcissist has to believe it for lesser and mid-range. Greater and ultra, we know that we're lying, but we're so effective at doing it, we can do it with great conviction. And because we're calculated, we're far less likely to leave loose ends lying around so that an obvious misdemeanour can be picked upon and thrown in our face. And even if that does happen, We lie with such conviction, but we find it entertaining to lie. Less than a mid-range narcissist, their lies are their truth. They don't know that they're lying. And it's very difficult for some people to understand that because from their perspective, they go, well, I know when I'm lying. Yes, from your perspective, you do. But the narcissist doesn't. You have to understand his perspective is different.
0: So we have... Uh, I'm going to do a couple more questions here and they're both in okay. the same, uh, are they in the same, kind of in the same vein. So the first one is about gray rock and you believe that gray rock doesn't work. So this person wants you to kind of explain for everyone, uh, you know, your perspective because they, when they wrote in, they thought it would be uh, very helpful for others to hear your perspective on this.
1: Okay. It's not a case of I don't believe it. I know that it doesn't work. If you stand next to me and I provoke you in some way, okay, and you try and restrict your reaction to me by saying nothing, okay, so you're not saying anything to me. So you're not giving me any fuel from your words. There's no tone to your words because you're silent. So I'm not getting any fuel. But your eyes will have changed. Your facial expression will have changed which means you've given me fuel and you've signaled that you're under control because it is extremely difficult for you to discipline yourself to not respond with the look in your eyes and your facial expression, possibly even your body language. When we draw fuel from you in person, we draw it from the words that you say, tone of those words, the look in your eyes, your facial expression, your gestures and your body language six strands of fuel that's why we get the most fuel from you in person imagine it's six layers fuel sandwich if you send me a text message all i get are the words not much fuel in that so with gray rock the problem with it is this just because you haven't waved your arms around and not said anything you're still giving me fuel because of the way that you're looking because you can't have you don't have control over that. Also, of course, you will often give away an emotive response before you can stop yourself. You'll gasp or you'll go what or you'll look horrified and you can't control that because your emotional responses occur faster than you can think. And so the problem is is that gray rock won't work because one from the very beginning you cannot be a slab of stone that the intention is Because you will give us fuel secondly the longer you stay in that room with me the easier it will become for me to provoke a reaction out of you why well first of all i am designed to do that i have to control you so my narcissism works to get that out of you if you're an empath you have an addiction to me your addiction is screaming inside react feed him interact with him so you have the enemy without me trying to manipulate a response from you and the enemy within your addiction and your emotional thinking trying to provoke you. So for instance, I start telling lies. Your addiction gets hold of your truth seeker trait and, and squeezes it so that you're thinking, no, I'm not going to react. I'm not going to say anything to these basic lies as I'm saying, you did this and you did that and then you did the other. And they're lies. And you as an empath... Inside, your true secret trick straining, saying, but that's not right. Tell him he's wrong. And your addiction gets hold of that and unleashes it. So you blurt out, that's a nothing lie. And you know it. Thank you very much. You've just given me fuel. Grey rock doesn't work. What you should do is have nothing to do with us. That's how you win. If you interact with us in any shape or form, and particularly in person, not only will you give us fuel from the very beginning in the that I've just described, you won't be able to keep it up. And you're also exposing yourself to an adverse consequence. Why stand there and allow somebody to shout at you or call you bad names or accuse you of being a whore? And you're also feeding your emotional thinking because you're interacting with us. So you will give us fuel. You will. We want that. So we win. You lose. And this is a zero-sum game. That's one nil to the narcissist. You will suffer an adverse consequence because if you are trying to deny us in some way, we will keep lashing out at you in some shape or form. So you are subjecting yourself unnecessarily to unpleasant behavior, which means you lose, we win, 2-0. nil. Three, you are exposing yourself to increased emotional thinking because you're interacting with us. Therefore, you lose, we win. You're also likely to increase the risk of being hoovered in in the near future. So you lose and we win. Four reasons not to do it. It doesn't work. And moreover, it subjects you to downsides which you shouldn't be subjecting yourself to.
0: In in a strange way, it is like you're sitting down at a poker table and uh, you are playing uh, a game and except you're playing a defensive game and the narcissist is playing an offensive game you have little chance of winning anything based upon the type of game you're playing. And the other person across from you, the narcissist in this poker game is looking for your tells and taking your money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, the only way to play is to not sit down at that poker table.
1: Absolutely right. You win, you win the battle by never fighting it. Yeah. And under, understand this, we absolutely are poor being ignored. We cannot stand no contact that's how you win with us if you ignore us if you walk away from us you ensure that we can't ring you text you that if we go to your front door and you don't answer it you wound us and we hate it because you make us feel small unimportant we don't matter that's how you land a blow against the narcissist you don't do it by standing there trying to not respond at all because you'll fail you certainly don't do it by coming up and saying hey Mr Narcissist you're a great a arsehole, because when you do that, you've just given us some fuel, which we want. Yes, it's negative fuel, and it's challenge fuel because you're insulting us. So we don't have control of you, but we will then lash out at you to try and get that control, or we'll withdraw. And you've just given us fuel. And you haven't wounded us. If you tell us bad names, if you say that we're lousy and useless, you're not wounding us, you're fueling us still. You're giving us part of what we want.
0: So the next question is, if you have to interact with an ex-spouse due to the children, how do you recommend you do so in person uh, on any occasion that is necessary? You recommend no contact or very low contact. And you would very likely say, don't interact with this person at all. But at times, uh, interacting is necessary or unavoidable. So how do you recommend going about uh, interacting with someone, an ex-spouse like this, with children, uh, when Grey Rock doesn't work?
1: I set all of this out in an assistance package called How to Co-Parent with a Narcissist. How you deal with this situation. Many people come to me in consultation and they say, I can't do no contact because I've got children with them. And I demonstrate to them that actually you can get very close. You can. First of all, you can do no contact. In certain situations, you can even when you've got children, it can be done in instances where you can't because there's a court order. And of course, you can't breach a court order. If there's a court order that says that this person has to the narcissist has to have some involvement with your children. That does not necessarily mean that you have to have involvement with the narcissist. You can hand the children over through gatekeepers. You can have gatekeepers with regard to messages. You can set things up so that you don't have to have that interaction with one another. And in order to save me time, I set out all of these different methods, many of which will surprise people in the assistance package that I've just mentioned, which you can obtain in the knowledge vault, which you'll find in the menu bar at narcside.com. In some instances, if you are hamstrung by a court order that says that you must have a telephone number that the narcissist can call in order to discuss arrangements with you, then you can't do no contact in those situations because there's a court order stopping you from doing it. What you do is that if you receive a message which has nothing to do with the children and it's inflammatory, you screenshot it and save it as evidence to to store this because you may well be able to use that to then remove the contact or visitation of the narcissist because of the behavior that's being engaged in, store it up as evidence, and you don't reply to it because it's unnecessary. Now, many people see the lie or the provocation, and because their emotional thinking is high, it causes them to want to respond. In that instance, you get, a, you get a provocative message, which doesn't need replying to. You ignore it. You don't have to set the narcissist straight. Too often people feel that they have to correct the narcissist. You don't. If there is something which is a bold lie, which is making you look bad, you answer it once and you say, that isn't correct, this is what happened. And then you don't state it again because at least you've then put it in evidence that that state of affairs is incorrect. What the narcissist will invariably do is try and move the goalposts slightly. Don't be caught out. Don't fall into the trap. You've stated your position once. And if there's an arrangement in place and the narcissist is trying to alter it unnecessarily, you stick to your guns and say, no, the arrangement is this as per the court order. And then if they don't like it and they say as such, that's the narcissist's problem. You don't have to keep engaging with them. So I accept that there are certain instances if the court order is so worded that you have to have some involvement. But actually, many times, and the people that I consult with, think that they have to have this involvement with the narcissist, and actually they don't. And there's lots of different ways of getting around it. As I say, the assistance package covers that. Where there is a tightly drawn order which compels you to have that interaction, then you you must do so, because you must not breach that court order. But in those circumstances, you keep the interaction to a minimum. You remember that you're dealing with a narcissist. You don't say I'm dealing with my ex. You don't say I'm dealing with the children's father or the children's mother. I'm dealing with a narcissist. And you remind yourself that this person is seeking control over you. And just because what they say is provocation doesn't mean you have to respond to it. Just because they come and they're all sunny and pleasant with you, you can say hello and leave it at that. And you can focus on you, not the narcissist. But this is an expansive topic, but quite simply, the starting point is this. Does the court order say that you actually have to have that involvement with the narcissist? If it doesn't, then you don't. And if you want to know the various ways that you can work around those interactions, use the assistance package. They're all set out in there. If the court order does compel you to have an interaction, only do so where it's necessary and meaningful and ensure the rest of the time that you don't respond. So if the narcissist keeps sending you lots of text messages arguing about the fact that little Johnny's shorts weren't provided, and you did provide them, just write, I provided Jonathan's shorts, they were in his backpack. And if the narcissist writes, But when I looked, they weren't in there, don't go back and go, well, they were, you idiot. You're getting drawn into the battle then. You've stated your position once. The narcissist doesn't like it. Let the narcissist whinge. The text messages can pile up. Let him get into a fury. You stated your position. You did provide them. There is evidence that confirms that you did. You stated your position. Don't get drawn into trying to demonstrate to the narcissist that he's wrong and you're right because he isn't capable of accepting it. Because every time you point out that he's wrong, what are you doing? You're threatening his control. So that unaware narcissist is duty bound instinctively to reject what you're saying. And that's when you get the back and forth. and You end up beating your head against a proverbial brick wall. So that's just some of the ways to deal with it. As I mentioned, the assistance package goes in a lot more detail.
0: Well, I want to thank you for being here today. Everything you've uh, given us has been extremely valuable and useful. You know, when it comes to the four cadres, uh, the three schools and the four classes, what is the best uh, starting point or book uh, from your collection to, I guess, be like really an introduction to you and... Uh, everything you're teaching?
1: Well, if you suspect that you're dealing with a narcissist, the starting point is is to find out, are you actually? And as you mentioned, utilize the narc detector. Don't try and guess it for yourself. I'm the expert. I'm objective. And so I tell you whether you're dealing with a narcissist, and I do tell some people that they're not dealing with narcissists. And then when you've got that, you can fine-tune your information thereafter by utilizing a variety of material in the knowledge vault which tells you more about the behaviours. I call it the H.G. Malls series, because what I do is I tell you more about the behaviours, but I do in a way that entertains you and lets you feel like you're getting a bit of revenge over the narcissist as I demonstrate their shortcomings and deficiencies. Because I have no loyalty to the lower orders of my kind. I find them just as mealy-mouthed and pathetic as all of you do. So... That, the H.G. Moore series goes into greater detail about the various schools and the cadres also. My book, Sitting Target, gives you more information also about the schools and the cadres. And a, you just search for the titles amongst my videos, there's lots of videos that tell you more information. So the starting point really is find out which one you're dealing with and then move from there. And, and then you can focus your search on the relevant information for that rather than trying to work it out. From a, a wide range of material and I think, well, I'm not sure. He seems a bit of that and he seems a bit of that and a bit of that. I'm a little bit confused as to which one it is. Uh, I would recommend that that's the most appropriate way to do it. If you don't want to do the narc detector, then just search for the terms that I've mentioned amongst my videos or on my blog and there'll be a wealth of videos and articles which are all free so that you can read or listen and build up your knowledge that way. And the book Sitting Target is useful in that respect also.
0: And all of this can be found at narcsite.com, N A R C S I T E.com. It will be in the show notes. And for everyone else who is listening from HG Tudor and I, we hope you have a good night.